0: Greetings, and welcome to another episode of PoetryCast. I'm your host, Jonathan Stone. First, I should apologize for allowing so much time to elapse between episodes. The usual distractions have gotten in the way of my productions, which, unfortunately, upstage my volunteer time for this podcast, but I'm not going to bore you any further with details. Let's move on to the topic of today's episode. I've decided to return to discussing my experience of translating Neruda's sonnets. That, too, has been a slow process, even painful at times. The beautiful thing about translation is that you get a feel for how the poet felt, the effort it took, and the thoughts that may have run through his head when composing his poems. When you take his language, his thoughts, his emotions, and translate them into your own language, your own interpretation of his thoughts, and feel the power of the words on the paper, the same power that he may have felt, it's quite incredible. It's a much deeper experience than simply reading his work, which is still quite powerful but what you get out of translation is the experience of the writing process as well. And lastly, I'd like to add that when you translate anything, you get a feel for the ethereal quality of language. When you take two entirely different words that mean the same thing, Well, you must ask yourself, what is, where is the underlying reality of language if it's so seemingly intangible? The two words are written differently, sound different, but are nevertheless similar in meaning. Early 20th century linguist Ferdinand de Saussure and his theory of the arbitrary nature of language comes to mind here. Essentially, he argued that a language is a closed system of sounds and symbols where each sound and symbol has a meaning only insofar as we have attributed a meaning that has been agreed upon by all the people who use that same system. However, I think it really becomes interesting when you take two systems and compare them to one another, as you do in translation, and attempt to extract the same meaning from that jumble of sounds and symbols. Furthermore, I would like to add that I don't believe that language is completely arbitrary. I think the way that a word sounds has a deeper, more primal meaning inherent within the sounds. For example, the way the word iron has a hard curtness to it, while the word feather seems softer and lighter in the sound of the word itself, the sound reflecting the meaning. Of course, my associations, associations may be purely psychological, but it doesn't mean they're not valid. Let's move our discussion now back to Neruda's sonnets. Neruda may have written his poems to be read, or more specifically, to be heard. But when you translate them into your own language, you also get an idea of the trouble that he must have had with writing his poems. You really gain a peek into the poet's head, such as how he must have struggled to find just the right word. You also gain, I believe, an insight into his life. This is what I've gained from translating his poems. Now I think that I should read one, and then talk a bit about my translation experience with it. Sonnet number sixty. In trying to wound me, they wounded you. That poisonous strike against my wishes, tearing through the web of my professions, and within you now remains oxide and insomnia. I don't want to see love in the blossoming moon of your brow emerge the scowl that watches me. I don't want your dreams to leave you with resentment, forgetting your obsolete crown of blades. Where I travel, follow bitter steps. Where I laugh, appears a darker expression before me. Where I sing, manifest curses, cackling and biting. It is that love, the shadow that life has given me, an empty suit that follows me, limping like a bleeding scarecrow in the fallow fields. I thought this would be an interesting poem to discuss in light of today's topic. The poem ends with an incredible image that stands out both literally and figuratively. The speaker refers to himself as a bleeding scarecrow, an image that I haven't taken much liberty with. In the original Spanish poem, he calls himself Una estampajaros de sonrisa sangrienta, which varies from mine with the last word, sonrisa sangrienta, which literally translates to bloody smile. This is where translation becomes interesting. In Stephen Tapscott's translation of the same poem, which is probably the most authoritative English translation of Pablo Neruda's 100 Sonnets, he translates the last phrase as bloody grin. I like this phrase, and it undoubtedly remains true to the original. On the other hand, I decided to take some liberty with Neruda's final line. I wanted to emphasize the isolation and the lack of agency that the speaker displays within this poem. All these things happen to him, and also to his lover, who we will assume to be his wife, Matilda but he and she both seem to lack the ability to take control of their circumstances. He also appears to feel angry and a bit guilty over the wounds that she suffered, but were meant for him. So I thought that the final image of the fallow field would work really well, since he is a character who attempts to scare off his adversaries, but at the same time he is helpless to actually fight back. He puts on a display of intimidation in the image of the scarecrow, but he can't follow through on his threats. In a way, his impotent, like a foul field that just lies there and doesn't produce any sustenance. So I created a repetition not of sound or syllable in the last line necessarily, but of meaning, two images of impotency, but also related through their relationship to one another. In this next poem, number 61, again we see some kind of force that alters their lives, the speakers and the lovers. In this sonnet, however, that force is unmistakably love. I'll read Sonnet 61 now, and you'll see what I mean. I carry love, its tale of injuries, its lengthy ray of static spines, and we close our eyes because nothing, because no injury can divide us. It is not blame that dampens your eyes, your hands do not grasp the blade, your feet do not search for the path, the shadowed honey has reached your heart. When love, like an immense wave, smashed us against the craggy coast, it kneaded us into a single dough. The pain slipped over the sweet face and straight toward the light of the open season. And with this, it consecrated the injured spring. In this poem, we hear some metaphors and see some images returned from earlier poems of his, such as the shadowed honey, the blade, and the metaphor of the baking of bread. If you've been following the program, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, well, the wonderful aspect of podcasts is that you can return to a previous one and just listen to it, just as you can with a poem, in a book. I'd like to now take a moment to explain a few of my personal translation choices for this poem. For example, in Tapscott's translation of Neruda's sonnets, Tapscott tends to use the adjective somber with honey, while I prefer a more visual adjective, shadowed, which according to my Spanish dictionary is the literal translation of Neruda's word sombría but it's also a synonym for Tapscott's choice, and vice versa. I know it's a bit confusing, but once again, as we mentioned before, that is the arbitrary nature of language, <laughs> and especially of translation. Another difference you'd notice if you were to read the two translations back-to-back, back, Tapscott's and mine, is in the last line. Tapscott's final line to the poem reads, thus, this wounded springtime was blessed. This line has the same meaning that mine has. And with this, it consecrated the injured spring. But where he repeats the word wound from the beginning of the sonnet, I repeat the word injured. As you can see, it's a simple matter of choice or preference. I like the way the "j" sounds in injured, whereas Tapscott perhaps preferred the "oo" in wounded. You might say that the difference is so slight that it's not even worth mentioning. Well, I would agree with you, however, the two lines. when simply heard is a string of isolated sounds. In other words, if all meaning were removed from the words, as if you heard the two lines as a foreigner. Then two lines do, in fact, sound vastly different. Sure, some sounds perfectly echo one another in both translations, such as this and spring, but my translation does not contain the sound I, as in time, nor does Tapscott's translation contain the repeated k as in consecrated. Furthermore, consecrated, for me at least, carries a different connotation with it than does blessed. Consecrated sounds almost as if the spring had no choice in the matter, whereas blessed sounds gentler and more compliant. What can I say, this is the way that language works. Sometimes it amazes me that human beings can understand one another at all, even when they speak the same language to one another. In fact, it seems that we're always translating each other, even if we're speaking that same language using that same system. Syntax and semantics always change, and therefore we always have to check with one another to make sure that the word we use with our sister will be understood in the same way by our brother. That's one of the most intriguing aspects of language, and one reason that I never lose interest in its study. A friend of mine had recently given a book to me titled The Language of Life by Bill Moyers. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, but if you're at all interested in the writing process of some of our most distinguished contemporary poets, then I would recommend reading it. Anyway, during my reading, I stumbled upon the section where Bill Moyers interviews Robert Bly. But before going into greater detail about what intrigued me about this particular interview, I should provide some more background to the text. Moyer's book is a collection of interviews with poets from the biennial Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival in Waterloo, New Jersey. And these interviews were done at the one that took place in 1988. It would seem that Moyer's wanted to celebrate the particular discourse that poetry offers. A discourse that differs from that of politics, commerce, and from our day-to-day interactions, despite the fact that the language is essentially the same usage is quite different, and Moyers presents this observation in an approachable manner. I went to the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival once in 1996, and it was the last one in which Allen Ginsberg read. I saw him at the podium beneath the tent, thought to myself, hey, he's just a man. I wish I could say that something special occurred or that I got to meet him, but I didn't. However, I never forgot seeing him there either. Let's get back to Moyers and his interview with Robert Bly. In this interview, Bly mentions the very poet that this podcast centers around, Pablo Neruda. Bly tells Moyers that Neruda was the greatest poet of the American continent since Walt Whitman. Whereas I don't really like to enforce the notion that there is a greatest poet, neither will I contest his evaluative declaration. However, Bly also studied Neruda in depth, and he mentions how important tradition was for the poet. We can see this in Neruda's use of the sonnet form, and also in the fact that he wrote poetry at all. I think that every writer must, to some extent, study the tradition in which he or she wishes to write within. How else would you know if what you're writing works? In other words, since poetry is, as Moyer suggests, its own form of discourse, then in order to communicate effectively within that discourse, you must first learn its language with its peculiar inflections and idioms, just as you would in any culture that you visit. That is what Neruda did, that is what Bly did, and that is what we're trying to do here in this podcast. I think that it's time for one last poem by Neruda. We might as well read the next sonnet from Neruda's Cien Sonatos de Amor, number 62. In this one, you'll see the bread image its return yet again, as it did in the previous sonnet, and as it repeats throughout his book. You see, repetition is one of the most accessible and ancient of the poetic devices. It's essentially a perfect rhyme, but it also creates a tighter poem. Allow me to explain for a moment how I believe repetition aids poetic enjoyment. Our memories are not that good. There are some days when I have difficult time remembering what I ate for dinner last night. But if someone were to remind me several times the following day what I ate the night before, then I would have no problem remembering. Or if the dinner were really good, I probably wouldn't forget either. I would be able to retrieve the memory almost immediately upon request. Repetition in poetry works the same way. We can't memorize a poem instantly when we hear it, but we do remember pieces of it, especially if those pieces are really good and work effectively. And we'll remember those pieces better if they are images, or smells, or repeated sounds. This is how I believe repetition aids in the process of memory, and thus improves the quality of a poem. Another way a poet may use repetition is repeating an image, or a phrase, or a word, or even a metaphor throughout a book of poetry. Not just in a single poem, but the entire book itself, which Neruda does with his sonnets. Well, that was a long enough preamble to Sonnet 62, so let's listen to it now. oh for me from us my love we wanted only to love one another and between our many wounds we prepared ourselves to receive our mortal blows we wanted the you and the eye for ourselves the flesh of the kiss the body of the secret bread and this was all immortal simplicity until hatred crept through the cracked window they despise us for not sharing our love for refusing to love others Misfortunes lay patient like the chairs of a great forgotten tomb until they bury themselves in ash and the threatening glares they cast snuff out with the dull twilight. I particularly love how the images in that poem isolate the two lovers from the rest of the world as well as bring them closer to one another. Well, I think that we've accomplished enough for today. I hope you enjoy today's show, and that you'll continue to, s- to subscribe and download future episodes of PoetryCast. As I mentioned before, the publishing frequency is rather irregular, but I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at poetrycast at yahoo.com. Hasta luego.